Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast, and also, Happy Thanksgiving! It's the day before Thanksgiving, you know, um, so Happy Thanksgiving. Real quick, wanted to say thank you all very, very much very much for listening to Farm Traveler over the years. We have had an awesome year and it is absolutely in a huge part because of you. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being curious about where your food comes from. Thank you to all of our guests for coming on the show and telling us about your passions, why you're farming, why you are doing what you're doing. So thank you all so much. I really, really, really appreciate it. So today on the show, we're actually kind of having an impromptu series on beef. Last week, we learned more about regenerative farming, about what Rep Provisions is doing, all that good stuff. And today, we are going to be talking with Ryan Goodman, who, if you follow him on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, he goes by the name Beef Runner. And so Ryan is an expert when it comes to all things beef. He also does a lot of speaking engagements where he talks about how beef ranchers can share their story online, how agriculture needs to be a little bit more diverse, how we need to focus on that diversity because it's there. And so we're really going to talk a lot about really all of that stuff today in our interview. Ryan and I are going to talk about kind of some issues affecting rural America, like internet access, which is a huge thing. Like even my parents in Bluntstown have really bad internet issues. And it's just something that is slowly getting you know, more attention and slowly getting fixed. Also some issues that beef ranchers are faced with things like the food supply chain, things like misinformation on labels and all of that stuff. We'll also talk about really something that I really wanted to learn more about. And that is how we can focus on the diversity that already is in ag and how we can amplify voices. We can help people that, you know, their voices might have been downplayed, how we can do a better job of amplifying them, protecting them, speaking up when rude comments are made and stuff like that. 
And also, Ryan will end our conversation today telling us how he is an ultra marathon runner and his whole process of preparing for a 100-mile race, his thoughts on how you can get into running, where you can, you know, break down your goals into smaller size chunks. You can join a community of runners or people that want to get in better shape. So I thought it was a really great idea because I really want to run and get in shape in 2023. So this is an awesome interview with Ryan. Really have been trying to plan this for a while. I'm glad we finally sat down and chatted. And of course, thank you so much for listening. If you want to see some cool clips of our interview, go over to our YouTube channel. Just look up Farm Traveler and see some quick clips from my interview with Ryan. And of course, check him out at the links below in the description. All right, this is a long intro, so thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. Enjoy this episode with Ryan. Happy Thanksgiving and hope you enjoy the episode. Again, it like reboots the meaning, but that's okay. All right, Ryan, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Doing good, Trevor. Glad to be here, and it's uh, it's a good day. Kind of, yeah. It's been a busy year, and and not too bad of weather, but uh, staying busy is usually a good thing. Yeah. So you're beef runner on Instagram, and I imagine is this kind of like a busy year for you? I mean, I've been following your Instagram and Twitter for a while. You're like going all over the place, speaking, doing everything. So how busy are you this time of year? Well, I've always been told I don't like grass grow underneath my feet. So it's been uh, <laughs> it's been definitely a year of exciting things from uh, from running and, and hundred mile adventures to ch- kind of changes in the career. And and I think as we've ramped up over the last couple of years, everybody's getting excited to get back into meetings and get going. And that is definitely reflected uh, in the schedule and the opportunities that we've had. You know, that's true. And I mean, we can talk about that in a little bit, but you, what's your big thing? Like you're a speaker, like what are some things you go there and you speak about? I know, I mean, just off the top of my head, I know it's beef running and diversity in ag. So what are kind of some key points you like to talk about in your speaking engagement? And also like, how did you get into that exactly? Yeah, I really kind of got into speaking by accident, as I think a lot of people do, uh, just kind of <laughs> sharing about my passion and things that I absolutely love to do. And, um, you know, I think it started all the way back. And when I was in graduate school and a local cattleman's organization asked me to come and kind of share what was about social media um, that I, that they should know as there were cattle farmers and kind of trying to jump into the digital world as it was. And so I think my speaking journey has kind of been on, on a lot of different things, but what I actually, um, I love doing and, and kind of what my bread and butter is, is spending long workshops, uh, full days and kind of training and going down a roadmap with small business owners, farmers, ranchers, volunteer organizations, and really trying to help them understand how advocacy is like part of a business plan. And also the importance of like, why are we involved online to connect with our consumers, our audiences, and that's what I am able to do a lot of. And that can work with like chambers of commerce, you know, small mm-hmm. businesses in the communities and national and global agricultural organizations. So I'm, I'm pretty lucky to have had that opportunity to kind of um, work with diverse audiences all over the place. And that takes me a lot of places. And so I absolutely love the opportunity to travel, see different farms, ranches, food businesses all across the country. And uh, and that definitely keeps me keeps me busy as if I don't have enough going on in, in other parts of work or life. <laughs> that's true and so um like we were talking about earlier i know covid kind of threw a wrench in everybody's plan and i mean obviously for you like how did that impact your speaking engagements i mean were you just doing zoom like what everybody else was doing like how did that impact you 
yeah, at that time in 2020, I was doing, you know, at the pace of about hundred meetings a year. So three weeks out of the month, I was traveling on the road and I loved having that opportunity. Um, but I vividly remember back in uh, February of 2020 and March, especially in 2020, that there was just a week there where absolutely everything canceled. People were just so mm. very unsure about how uh, we were going to be able to meet, how we were going to handle the new, new, um, new challenges that we had in front of us. And so I really kind of embraced that opportunity to say, okay, well, we've got Zoom, we've got digital assets. Um, how do we jump online and, and utilize these things to the best of our ability? And I think that's really cool here. And as we are a couple of years removed from that opportunity, um, we really have adapted and changed to digital tools. People are a lot less imitated, uh, intimidated by uh, jumping on a Zoom call and having a mm -hmm. conversation virtually or even like using a QR code, you know, I'm seeing people in their seventies and eighties. Uh, I was at a trade show a couple weeks ago and they just pulled out their phones and, and automatically scanned a QR code to get the information we had at the booth. And that's something that I definitely would not have pictured or envisioned in 2019 or 2020. And so it's pretty cool, the opportunities and how we've adapted. Um, but it also makes people a lot more accessible. You know, we don't have to travel as much to be able to interact with as many people. And I think that makes those opportunities to meet in person and travel um, a lot more enriching experiences. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I think in 2021, I think in January, I covered my first trade show and it was the Southeast Regional Fruit and Growers Association, but it was all digital. And it was so neat. Like you could go to all these different booths on a website, click them, see what they were doing. It would take you to their website and like their brochures and stuff like that. And I think they did all that in like a couple, like a month or so, like they made that switch from in-person to digital. And then last year in January, 2022, or this year, we actually went and saw it on person, which was really neat. So it's awesome that, I mean, the ag industry is just so quick to adapt and really just, I guess, conferences as a whole were able to adapt so quickly because of meetings and I don't know, all, all the Zoom stuff. It was pretty neat. Yeah, it is. And in part of that challenge, too, you know, as everything has jumped online, we have the expectation that everyone should be able to be online. And, and we've talked about it for years, but you really saw that come into play with access to rural Internet and high speed Internet and broadband. And, and that's definitely kind of been a challenge for me. You know, there was times where I didn't have even Internet access to be able to jump on a video call. And uh, thank goodness to have um, Starlink access. We were able to get on the Starlink access this year. And that's that's huge. Uh, and the opportunities there, I think, where we can connect rural America and rural communities and really engage in an age that has fast forwarded and jumped both feet into the digital age and being connected so much um, provides a lot of opportunities. I think for farmers and ranchers and just connecting business, but also entrepreneurs that are able to live on the farm or the ranch and um, or in rural areas and, and to be able to be more involved with leadership as part of organizations and be present in a lot of places. It's just really exciting to see the momentum that's building behind that. Didn't you tweet about that a couple of months ago about Starlink? Because I think I tweeted at you or something. I mean, you were sharing like the the internet speeds you were getting with Starlink versus what you had gotten before. And it was like tenfold the speeds you were getting or something like that, right? Yeah, it is. I, as with anything, you know, good on Twitter, I jump on and, and give a shout out, good <laughs> or bad, to a couple of companies and brands. And uh, yeah, I jumped on there and, and kind of had that. And that sparked some conversations. You know, that's something that people across uh, rural communities all over the country um, experience. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities there when we start engaging and discussing in that. Yeah. I, I mean, my parents, for example, they live in Bluntstown, Florida, which is like an hour away from here in Panama City. And it's not super rural, but I mean, their internet speeds, they pay double what I pay here in Panama City, which has 
couple thousand more people, but they get like a fifth of the internet speed and it's just crazy. And I mean, that's happening all across the country with people, like you said, that are trying to start businesses or trying to grow followings online. And I mean, I know they've started about the rule broadband access or something, or rural internet. I don't know. It was some law that happened like a year ago or something where they're trying to fix the infrastructure that's there that, you know, can hopefully help people, especially in the ag world, kind of build their businesses online. Yeah, I think that's definitely been an asset to a lot of people um, to be able to have access to to all the digital tools that we have today. You know, on our farm, um, where I'm at in Southwest Virginia, we're we're quite removed from a lot of the population centers um, that there are in Virginia or the Carolinas. Um, but we had the opportunity to jump online, um, jumping into beef cells and really connecting mm-hmm. with a lot of people um, and utilizing video to kind of showcase what's going on on the farm and being able to broadcast that. Um, even though we don't have cell reception yet to kind of do live videos dependably in the field, um, I'm able to record those and upload those without struggle um, when I go home. And that makes a huge impact in being able to do that. Um, but also, you know, building a, a, a small business and kind of our flower uh, Dahlia tubers, um, which have kind of become a unique enterprise on the farm. We're able to connect um, in the same way with customers all across the country without access. And so, you know, we talk about it a lot, but there are very specific examples coming out where increased access allows small businesses like our own farm um, to be able to diversify your income, diversify our opportunities, um, and really kind of make our rural communities thrive. And I know we've talked a lot about it, those things, but um, it's really exciting to see some of those things come into action and some of those more specific and concrete stories come come alive. Um, and I think that's really helping to push some of these initiatives to, uh, to get better infrastructure um, to allow some of those things to happen. Yeah, that's true. And that's a really good point. I mean, even something as simple as like uploading an Instagram video or a Facebook video or something like that. I mean, that really helps farmers get the word out there about their farm, show them what they're doing. I mean, you know, look at people like Garrett Josie that has built just a whole like little a small little empire based on what he's doing, sharing his videos, sharing his knowledge. And I mean, he couldn't do that if he had really bad Internet service. And so it's I mean, it's not just, you know, so you can browse the internet and watch, you know, Netflix a lot easier. So you can effectively run your business and build your brand. And so it's cool that more people are slowly being able to do that. Yep, definitely. But we all know we always have, always have the the next obstacle is being able to get the apps to work correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also true. I mean, not only uploading, but also updating, downloading the correct app and all that stuff. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a whole other conversation, but we, um, we actually talked, a lot, I feel like, wow, two years ago, maybe at the start of COVID, we did like a quick little thing talking about um, how beef ranchers are surviving. Um, tell us a little bit more about kind of your background with beef and then kind of what are beef farmers doing now? Like what are the current trends? What's it look like? Yeah, definitely. Beef world is is something that I've been in my entire life. I grew up on a diversified large cattle ranch in Arkansas. Um, so we had the mother cows and the yearling calves or stalker cattle. Um, and then we retained ownership on those cattle all the way to finishing in the feed yards of the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles. And so mm-hmm. I grew up with a pretty broad experience um, in that and have pursued uh, opportunities to broaden those experiences ever since I grew up. Uh, so I went to school in Oklahoma State and uh, Tennessee and kind of dove deeper before going out west again and going to the feed yards, um, working, you know, in 45, 60,000 head cattle feed yards and then working in uh, ranches and in Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, before jumping in the host association world. And, and I've been involved in policy work, communications and advocacy and marketing, I guess, the last decade or so. 
And I think that's a, I recognize that that's a unique opportunity to have a very broad um, hands-on experience across the sectors of agriculture and and specifically the cattle industry. And so over the last couple of years, we've obviously, we've talked about the disruptions um, to the supply chain that I think have Mm -hmm. impacted every facet of our life and, and beef and the meat and protein industries were no, um, we're not excluded from that disruption. Um, we're to a point now, I think that we have figured out, found, figured out things. Um, and now it's kind of, we're facing other challenges, um, as we, uh, move into 2023, um, in our protein supplies. And so, you know, one of the big challenges and headlines of the year have been the drought out West that's really impacted cattle supplies, um, as farmers and ranchers have had to, um, pay significantly higher prices for feedstuffs, and that in turn has resulted in them um, reducing their inventories, um, cutting their herds down in size, um, selling off animals earlier than they might would. Um, and that'll have impact for years to come, kind of like tighter beef supplies as we try to rebuild that herd when moisture does return. And, uh, but, you know, we can talk about all the price implications and things like that that happen. Uh, people ask, What's going to happen to the beef supply at the grocery store or at a restaurant? Um, there will be plenty of beef. Um, prices may be high if kind of actions of supply and demand. But one of the unique things I think that doesn't get pointed out um, in these situations is that likely coming out of this, we'll see an increase um, in the quality of beef that's being raised in the U.S. and the supply of the highest quality beef. Um, so like we, when we cut down our herds, we you know, sell the lower quality animals or the lower performing animals a lot of the time first. And coming out of that, you've got better genetics, higher performing animals in your herd is mm-hmm. a higher percentage. And so you produce better beef that comes out of that. And so that's really exciting um, to think about some of those opportunities that are ahead and down the road, you know, once we kind of come out of some of these challenges that we have. Yeah. And speaking of those challenges, again, I, th- I think it was you or somebody else that tweeted this out. It was that during the food supply chain issues, we didn't have a beef shortage. We had a supply chain issue that was affecting all of that. Like we still had a great amount of beef, but because we had so so few processors, some were shutting down, we had issues processing that beef. And so how do you think we can kind of, I don't know, future-proof the food, the food supply chain so something like that doesn't happen again? Um, I think we've learned a lot from 2020 mm-hmm. and kind of the supply chain bottlenecks that we have. Um, in storage or transportation or packaging of our food products and being able to avoid some of those disruptions in the future. I think I know we've learned a lot from some of those different things. Um, and so um, from a personal standpoint, um, I think a lot of people have turned to, to freezer beef, you know, getting a mm-hmm. deep freezer and how can I fill up that food? Um, I know our farms have been able to capitalize on being able to do that, you know, selling 15 to 20 head of cattle every year for local beef is freezer beef. Um, to local families that want to stock up on that. So I get to talk to a lot of people um, that want to purchase our beef or are interested and ask a lot of questions. And and that is one of the concerns. You know, they say, hey, you know, I remember when I went to the grocery store and there wasn't the beef that I was looking for, or um, I've seen prices going up really high right now. And and I recognize that my family of five, we eat a lot of beef. And so I want to make sure that we've got protein in the freezer um, when that is there. So I think that's a lesson that a lot of people have learned if they had the opportunity with their income um, to the stockpile a little bit in the freezer, um, that that can be a huge asset and opportunity. Um, I also look at that as kind of a fun adventure. I talk to a lot mm. of people that they're just used to eating ground beef or roast. Um, you know, they think a T-bone, um, but when you get a quarter or a half of beef, you get all of those cuts. Um, maybe some steaks or roasts that you weren't used to, 
and kind of some adventures and grilling and in the kitchen. And that's where I have a lot of fun with uh, conversations with people. Of uh, They'll come up to um, to the truck when we're selling beef in, in town and, you know, off the tailgate. And um, they'll say, well, what's, what are these beef tips? Or should I get beef tips or stew meat? Or which roast should I get? You know, a lot of people don't know the difference between the two. And so that's really cool. I can use my experiences working with a lot of chefs or culinary experts um, or dietitians in the food world and help them to kind of navigate, okay, what do you want to cook? And then uh, how can I help you find the right cut to be able to do that? So I think that's um, kind of fueled the the food experience scene mm-hmm. um, that we saw pre-pandemic. Um, but a lot of people are kind of looking at, okay, I may not always be able to get that strip steak or that ribeye that I want, but where are some other cuts that I can experience um, and, and kind of change up the menu and, and get those new, um, you know, flavor and, and, and texture experiences um, at the dinner table. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. I found, I, I had him on the show a couple of months ago. Um, there's an old Florida senator named Alan Boyd, and he's got Boyd Farms Fresh. And they're around the Georgia-Florida line over kind of near Jacksonville, I think kind of between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. And um, found them, had them on. I've tried hanger steaks from them, ground beef. And last night, actually, my wife and I, we cooked a picanha, which I've never cooked before. But it was delicious. And it was so easy to find because I, I mean, they just happened. I, I was following them. They happened to say, hey, it's on sale. Try it out. It's like, you know what? I want to try this out. Never tried it before. And I mean, it's awesome. Kind of like how you're saying people have gotten more adventurous with food, with cooking, trying new things because of COVID. And because, you know, these specialty smaller scale beef farmers are bringing cuts that you won't find at a grocery store. And it's like, hey, let me try that. I think I'm, you're kind of, I don't know, making your food supply chain a lot smaller because you know the people raising your beef and it's a lot more local to you, which is great. Yeah, I th- I, I've seen your stories and kind of experiences and discovering some of those other cuts and, it, and it's kind of fun um, to, to see that, you know, I've grown up with a, you know, with the freezer full my entire life. And sometimes that's easy to take for granted. You know, if I grew up on a ranch and, and always had access to beef, um, it's it's difficult sometimes to, to understand that some people may not, not have had those experiences. And so I think it's fun to kind of think outside the box and try something new. And it's really cool to see different farms and ranches being able to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, you know, even here in our small community of a couple hundred people, you know, there's three different farms that are offering local beef. And that's kind of become a bit of a challenge of like, well, how did, how do we differentiate? And you see a lot of people using marketing, um, marketing terms that aren't exactly true or aren't, <laughs> you know, backed in science or fact or, or actual substantial numbers or make a difference in kind of the quality of beef. And those things kind of get under my skin a little bit because um, I refuse to use terms such as you know, antibiotic free or natural or hormone free, mm-hmm. um, or even grass fed, um, when we're selling our beef, because, you know, there's a lot of perceptions out there that are fueled by the free from terms and, mm. um, they really have a lot of negative implications. And so, uh, you know, it can be difficult. And when we're trying to get ahead in the marketing scene locally, and, and you've got so many different farms and outlets where we can get our food from today, um, that that's a really great opportunity. But I think when we talk about advocacy over the last decade, 15 years online, we've been fighting misperceptions around food today. And I think those continue to be fueled today, maybe just in different forms. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit. I'm, I'm kind of the same. I, I see all these labels like grass fed, cruelty free. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, I mean, a lot of them are like one you just mentioned antibiotic free that's in milk, which again, you, I saw you posted that today on Instagram, like antibiotic free milk, antibiotic free meat. Well, Everything you eat 
meat, dairy, whatever, it's checked multiple times to make sure there's no antibiotic, antibiotic residue. And so it's really just using scare tactics. Do you think that if this product doesn't have it on there, then it's going to have antibiotics in there, when in reality it doesn't. And so it's just kind of, do you think it gives farmers kind of a bad name whenever they have that stuff on there? You know, it, it, it creates confusion um, when those labels exist. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I, there was an article that came out today about dairy. And it was saying mm. that consumers preferred to purchase milk, dairy milk from um, farms or cows where it was labeled as antibiotic free or antibiotics weren't used um, in an unnecessary manner. And I'm like, well, why would, why would, what do you mean exactly? What's a specific example of unnecessary use of antibiotics? You know, I really I struggle sometimes to figure out what the perception of that is. And I think mm -hmm. that's fueled by a lot of those free from labels. And, uh, and it's really intriguing to me that a lot of people don't understand that every load of milk is tested for antibiotics and antibiotic residues um, to ensure that that's not getting in, into the supply. But on the meat side, um, I heard the other day from a mother and she was really concerned about, you know, the guilt that she had um, in purchasing safe foods for her kids. Mm. And the story, as she was sharing her story and she kind of went on, it, it, it kind of came to, to, to realization that she felt a lot of guilt because she could not afford to buy the beef that had the antibiotic free label on it. And she had just come to terms with the fact that she was feeding her kids meat that had antibiotics in it um, because she was guilty. She felt guilt because she couldn't afford the better meat that didn't have antibiotics in it. And that's really frustrating to me, not only as a producer, but someone who's worked um, in advocacy and communications in the industry for a really long time to communicate that we have standards in place to ensure that we are doing our best job to meet our goal, that there are not any antibiotics on any meat on the shelf. Um, you know, we can't say zero because that's not scientifically accurate. The standard is not 0, 0.00, you know, to infinity um, and not every single carcass is you know, not every single cut of meat is tested every single time, but statistically we've said with USDA, FDA, and, and all the food safety research that has been done that said we are testing to a level to ensure that antibiotics are not in harmful levels in our food. And, you know, for me as a producer, there's financial implications too, or repercussions too, because, you know, if I was to sell animals with antibiotics in them and they get tested positive, I'm out of business. I can't sell meat in that market anymore. And that really cuts down my financial application implications. So it's a big conversation. You know, I was up at Washington, D.C. at the um, uh, National Institute for Animal Ag held an antibiotic symposium. And the CDC was there, the FDA, a lot of people from policy work from the Beltway were there. And there's an, a symposium to talk about all things antibiotics. But we weren't sitting up there holding up a bottle of antibiotics and, and talking about withdrawal times. Like we were talking mm -hmm. about the entire toolbox of tools and resources and knowledge and experiences that we have to better manage animals and prevent the use of antibiotics. All of those things from animal handling and health and nutrition, um, just a better understanding, you know, how, how animals behave. We're all part of that symposium. And so when we talk about antibiotics and the supply, it's not as simple as just putting a free from label on there um, because you want to, um, but there's a whole lot to that, you know, conversation. So when it comes back to you know, when I'm at the table in town selling our meat to customers, we'll have a lot of people come up um, from Winston-Salem, Charlotte, metro areas, and they'll say, mm -hmm. oh, well, is your meat antibiotic-free? And I'll say, no, we're not selling meat that's antibiotic-free. 
Um, we treat our animals when they are sick and using antibiotics with the guidance of our veterinarian. But I can tell you today that this animal that this meat came from never received antibiotics in our, in our, in our, in its life. And, um, it's a bit of a conversation, but it really, like I said, grinds my gears when we get those free from labels, not only because they create the guilt, um, that's really unnecessary, um, but it creates a lot of confusion out there about what are actual farm practices that are being used. And I think undermines all of the work that we as farmers and ranchers are doing to raise safe food products. Oh yeah. A hundred percent agree. I mean, you probably know her, Michelle Payne, she's got the book. It's talking about like food bullying and stuff. And she does a great job kind of breaking down how misinformation like this really gives farmers like a bad name. And when there's so much that goes into it, when consumers think you either give cows antibiotics or you don't, but there's so much that goes into that. Like you're saying, like if a cow is sick, we give it antibiotics as like a last ditch resort. We don't give all of our cows antibiotics. There's so much that goes into it. And just by, you know, making it just a small issue, like, Oh, it's either antibiotic free or it's not. You're like, no, there's a lot more to it. And I mean, that's awesome that you're like, actually, no, we're not giving away antibiotic free milk. Here's what's going on. Here's why, you know, this is what it is. Yeah. And I think that continues and and expands in hormones. I mean, hormones, added hormones are a completely different, you know, another conversation that adds to that complexity or grain fed, grain finished or grass fed. Um, But what I found a lot in kind of marketing local beef and working with farmers and ranchers all across the country that are marketing in lots of different ways. You know, I've worked in some of the largest feed yards in the country and I've worked for several different operations that, that produce beef for niche products. And what I've learned is that people um, want quality. They seek yeah. out, you know, quality food, quality proteins, and really want to have a better understanding of what makes that. Um, and they seek out convenience. And today I think part of that convenience is meeting um, a local farmer, someone local. It feels really good to support a local farm directly. And I think that that's a really cool opportunity and kind of that convenience factor that comes in. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to be able to sit down and have a good meal that tastes great and we enjoy it. And I think it's that environment. You know, we're coming up on the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, New Year's, um, all the holidays that exist. And what you think about all of these times is it's food and family and friends. And I think that's where it all comes together. And that's a really good feeling at the end of it. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Um, I think that's huge. And I think, you know, the more farmers like you guys are doing to get out there and be the face of your products and talk with consumers, I think that'll be great. And I think that's obviously a huge educational tool, which hopefully will happen more and more as, you know, I've been seeing like kind of a surgence of more farmers doing direct to consumer going to farmers markets, maybe being like a Boyd Farms and they're selling online or they're going everywhere, um, kind of selling, which, you know, I think is huge. Do you think that's kind of kind of a trend right now in beef? Uh, you know, I think there's, yeah, I think that's one of the trends um, and being able to, I think a lot of farmers and ranchers are looking for opportunities to diversify their income um, mm-hmm. and diversify their operations. And so mar- local local marketing can be one of those avenues. It's a lot of work um, mm-hmm. to, to market locally on any scale. And so if you're going to jump into that, you know, and, and do it right and do it sustainably uh, from an economic financial standpoint and, and you know, kind of your time and, and bandwidth and resources, um, it takes a lot of work to kind of accomplish some of those things. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think local local beef and local opportunities and more regional food is definitely something we've seen um, and will continue to grow. And I think it has its place um, as we for, for a good segment of the population that has um, the disposable income or the income available to be able to do that. Um, but we can't forget the people that, 
that maybe don't have those resources or access to those resources. And that's where some, you know, that's where our, our larger food systems come into play. And that's critically important. Um, so as much as we talk about, well, it's nice to have all these, you know, antibiotic free beef or local food mm-hmm. or, or high quality beef. I think it's really important to, um, to also remember um, food access is really a huge issue um, as we come into play in some of these things. And so um, the, the president's kind of conference on nut- food, nutrition and health, I'm, I'm butchering that name, but, you know, the, the president revived, you know, the conference talking about nutrition um, in the country and, you know, access to food was one of those huge, huge topics that come up and being able to do that. And I think you see a lot of conversations that are coming up with that. So not only local food, um, it's really cool to see, uh, you know, there's a school in Greenville, South Carolina that's serving certified Angus beef, you know, in all of their school food programs, they're serving premium high quality beef, you know, as part of school food. And, and then you see a lot of school systems incorporating local food products, um, when they can, uh, local vegetables, local beef, local protein into their schools. But you also see a lot of conversations, uh, about maintaining free lunch programs. And that was one of the cool things that I saw, uh, coming out of Colorado, um, they, you know, passed uh, in the election, you know, opportunity to extend permanently free lunch, free school lunch programs. And so I think there's a lot of different facets that are, are good trends and positive trends or constructive opportunities that we're working on across the food industry. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a lot of stuff going on. And I mean, I think that when we can, we were talking about earlier, when you can shorten the food supply chain, get produce locally to you or get great quality beef as local to you as possible. I mean, that's going to be a win-win for everybody. The farmers in that community, the community itself, the students, diets. I mean, that's going to be huge. That's awesome. And I mean, I think a lot of stuff is happening where let's say you're, I don't know, in New York or a big metropolitan city. There's so many um, controlled environment agriculture companies starting up like a Gotham Greens, Aero Farms, where you can grow that local produce, ship it to that local community. And then boom, and then fine ranchers may be close to you. So that's huge. Yeah, I think that the the administration is doing a lot of good when it comes to food access for students and just kind of improving the diet, which is, you know, obviously very good. Yeah, I think there's a lot of cool things. Yeah, you see opportunities like that, you know, even in Metro New, like New York, getting local food opportunities. Um, then you see a lot of food, you know, support programs going on in cities and areas like that. Um, but also see you see other opportunities where all of that comes together. Um, I was at the Culinary Institute of America up in Hyde Park, which is just north mm. of New York City, um, back in September, and was able to connect with a lot of culinary students and culinary um, experience there on campus, you know, world, world-renowned world school for the culinary arts. And they're bringing a lot of that together, not only just like, you know, great food experiences and cooking and culinary skills, um, but also looking at the local food movement or getting involved in local communities as well. So I think there's a lot of places where all of that comes together. And that's pretty cool to see. Cool to see. Yeah, that is that is cool. And and I didn't know until like a year or so kind of the the severity of food deserts, especially here in the US. And I mean, I did more research. I drove around some parts of Panama City and I was like, hold up. 
this is the food desert. Like the nearest grocery store is five minutes away, like by driving. And it's going to be like 30 minutes away while walking. And I mean, that's, that's difficult that a lot of families, you know, don't have access to fresh food. All they can go to locally is a gas station and that's it. And nobody really thinks about that until you see it, you know, in other cities and you drive around your hometown and you're like, wait, this is actually a thing here too. And so I think slowly more and more people slowly becoming aware of, you know, food deserts, the implications of that, and then how local they are. That's not just in big cities. It's in cities all across the country. Yeah. I live in one of those areas Um, here in Southwest Virginia. We are uh, 20 minutes away from your closest food lion, Walmart, um, food city uh, to be able to get, you know, affordable, fresh foods Um, in the area. We do have kind of a convenience store that has, you know, kind of purchased and higher priced, you know, limited quantities of food for people that are in the area. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's still so many places in this country that have, you know, that that have limited access to food and are considered food deserts. And so I think that's what, you know, kind of makes the food system really kind of unique right now. I think we've got a lot of different dynamics at play. And so we get wrapped up in a lot of these you know, premium opportunities, local opportunities, um, or even paying attention to food access. But there's so many different things that it's it's really important to kind of keep keep a keep an eye to the larger conversations and the broader experiences that everybody's having, and and um, that's what makes it really comfortable. I guess really difficult to kind of be in communications and marketing world right now too, because there's so many different things that are going on. Oh yeah, and so this is kind of a segue, which we've kind of talked about a little bit. Um, when we talk about beef and we talk about our expectations with the price of beef and all that good stuff, especially for families that, you know, can't afford direct to consumer beef, like they go to Walmart, Food Lion, Publix, wherever, and they get beef that they can afford. So there has been this trend of regenerative raised beef. And also we have, like you were talking about earlier, feed yard beef. And I know there are people on either side. Some people say regenerative beef is the answer. Some people say feed yard beef is the answer. Hot take. I think both can definitely, definitely work. And I mean, so what are your thoughts on on that? Like, can both of them work? Are both of them, I don't know, can regenerative farming learn from feed yards? Can feed yards learn from regenerative farming? What do you think? Well, that's a hot topic. You get, <laughs> I, yes. I, 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 I kind of blindsided you with that. <laughs> no, I have thoughts. Um, so I will use the word. The, to me, regenerative farming is kind of along the lines of trying to be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was an evolution of sustainable farming. Well, we want to go farther. We want to do more. We want to be kind of more, even further on the extreme of what that terminology and marketing is. Um, and, and I'll say that, you know, I think that the terms like that are marketing, mm-hmm. um, whether it was sustainable and now regenerative and we keep pushing in part of some of those things. Um, and I think they're, they're purely marketing because there's no set standard on what those things mean. Um, it's kind of like natural on a food label. What is natural? Um, we, there's really no set definition that explains that, um, because what's sustainable on our farm in Southwest Virginia is not sustainable on the ranch where I was at in Colorado on the high plains mm-hmm. or sustainable on the ranchers that are, you know, on the ranches that I was working with in Montana up in the mountains at high elevation where, you know, it's already sub-zero winter um, up there. And so when I think when we talk about re- regenerative or sustainable, I think what we're getting at is how do we make better use of our resources um, while reducing inputs is where a lot of those are getting at. Um, 
And I really struggle with a lot of the narrative and some of those marketing plans of how do we go back doing things the way we used to. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really a challenge because our science and understanding of environment, water resources, um, soil health, um, building soil health um, to improve, you know, some of the damages that have been done. Um, Animal nutrition, plant uh, plant nutrition and health, you know, it, our understanding of those things continue to evolve. And so I think there's kind of segments of, of those movements that just want to go back to the way things were and the natural and organic or whatever that might be. And, you know, what's after regenerative, I think that's the question that's been asked, where are we going to go next? How, yeah. how much farther in the extreme can we take it? But what it comes down to is doing what's right for your resources and your business model um, to be able to serve the customer base that you have. And I think a lot of farmers and ranchers implement practices that are part of the regenerative or sustainable mo- movement um, in those definitions and those things that we're seeking for uh, seeking. Um, but they all come into play for what's best for the operation. Are some businesses and, and farms and ranches doing a better job at that of taking care of their resources? Absolutely. Um, and some have opportunity for improvements. I think we all have opportunity for improvements um, when it comes to things like this. Um, but what it comes down to is that um, a lot of the conversations that I've had um, with consumers and customers and farmers and ranchers and the consumer research that we've seen is that um, people want to know that the food that they're eating was coming, you know, in the case of protein coming from animals that were well cared for, mm-hmm. um, you know, from farmers and ranchers that care about the environment. And they're showing that they are doing things um, to help improve that. And that's where we kind of get you know, into some politics within the industry of like, well, we don't like the sustainable term because we think someone else is trying to force it upon us. But if we really think that like, are we doing what's best for our environment, our animals, our resources, our people, um, and working to find opportunities to improve upon those things every day. And if we can showcase how we're doing that, I think that addresses a lot of the concerns that maybe something like the sustainable or regenerative ag movement um, are trying to appease. Yeah, that's really huge. I mean, I feel like if we get hooked on the buzzwords too much, we're focusing on the buzzwords and not the actual changes that occur. I mean, for example, I've talked with a ton of of farmers that are doing more sustainable practices, but they've talked about in depth that if one farmer does crop rotation and another does crop rotation, the one not doing it is like, well, hey, why aren't you doing it? It's more sustainable. Well, it might not work on his farm and he's probably tried it he's probably doing a completely different sustainable method that we don't know about. And I mean, it's all about just kind of, you know, trusting those farmers, letting them share their story, letting us, letting them educate us on what they're doing. And, you know, like you said, not getting hooked up on the terminology that really doesn't have any standards to live up to, which is also, I feel like that's, I don't know, a three hour discussion on all these buzzwords and everything in ag and food that, you know, have no data behind them. They're just buzzwords that, Farmers didn't come up with, but marketing agencies did to help their products fly off the shelf better. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's it's important that we allow and recognize farmers and ranchers to do what's best for their business, their operations, their animal, mm-hmm. their environment. Right. Um, whether that's crop rotations um, or cover crops or grazing, rotational grazing um, or working with different water resources, whatever it is that they have, you know, even to like what t- what time of year are you calving? You know, that comes into oh, the yeah. situation and, and there's reasons for that. Um, and so I think it's important that, you know, we kind of recognize and one of the ways that we have freedom to continue to be able to do that is to share our story and share what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, but also acknowledging 
the concerns of our consumers, our customers. Because at the end of the day, if we don't have customers and we aren't acknowledging their concerns or showing them how we're addressing some of those things, um, mm -hmm. we may not have customers at the end of the day and be able to stay in business. And so I think it's really important that we acknowledge that um, the option, the freedom to choose and the availability of that choice is really important. So, you know, those farms who are, um, op who are operating to market to niche um, customers and, and niche audiences, um, I think it's really cool that they can serve and they can provide as a resource um, to those groups uh, in that outlet and being able to do that. But it's important that we don't kind of uh, take derogatory actions towards those that don't choose to market to those niche audiences or in, in that method, because there are other customers and other needs and wants out there too. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I mean, just kind of doing, you know, trusting the farmer, finding farmers that you'd agree with and not chastising farmers that aren't doing things that, it, you know, I mean, as a consumer, like I, I've really, when I started this podcast, I was kind of like, well, you know, growers that grow organic are crazy. I'm not going to buy organic produce. But now I've, after interviewing dozens and dozens, I'm like, these guys are doing it because of X, Y, and Z. They've, they've put in hundreds of hours of research into it. Like I need to trust them. If they're growing organic, they know why they're doing it. If you're raising beef in feed yards, or if you're raising beef regeneratively, like you have your hard data on why you're doing it. Like it's not my domain. It's not my career. I need to trust you. I need to ask you questions, but I need to trust you and just kind of build a relationship there, which again is awesome when you have more companies selling direct to consumer. You can have those conversations, sometimes hard, sometimes easy, sometimes great conversations, obviously, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You know, uh, it'd be a whole lot easier if we were able to just raise our calves and ship them off to the feed yard and, and sell them. And, and that'd be our marketing plan. Um, but to be able to grow the operation to grow, you know, as a family grows, um, we're not able to always able to grow more acreage and keep growing that way. So diversifying the farm for us has meant, you know, growing into going into flower tubers and, and kind of getting into that market, but also marketing local beef. And um, that's an opportunity. It's some added value to some of our animals, but it's also it's it's really fulfilling at the end of the day, you know, to be able to hear those conversations and hear those stories and be able to connect with our neighbors um, in that in that way. and know that we are raising food to fill their tables and, and tables of families all across the globe. And that's, that's kind of cool at the end of the day, but yeah, there's no black and white, no clear cut <laughs> lines on all that. It, it takes a little bit of everything to make it work. Yeah, that's true. And okay. Another, another wonderful segue. So going back to the beginning, your speaking engagements and talking about diversity, having conversations, you're also really big on having better diversity in ag. And tell us kind of about that. I know you do a really good job of that online, kind of showcasing your experiences, what things we need to do better. So tell us kind of the inspiration and the whole story behind that. Um, yeah, that could be a whole whole hour in itself. But <laughs> I think be, to yeah. kind of get to the get to the chase, you know, I I grew up like many people in in conservative rural uh, America, um, growing growing up in a farming and ranching community, you know, and kind of just knew the people that were around me. But as I've moved across the country, I've had the opportunity to experience a lot of different things. Um, and specifically in June of 2020, that really came came home to me um, and being able to impact impact me personally, but also opening my eyes, okay, how can I take action to make things better for other people so they don't have to experience some of the things that I have um, or some of the things that have been brought to light from other people's experiences. And um, in June of 2020, I was at an organization and the CEO came up unannounced, um, unprompted with a new staff culture document. 
Um, and you think about the culture and society in June 2020, that all that was going on and cropping up in diversity conversations kind of at the forefront of the headlines. And in that staff, staff document, um, it asked that we as staff in the organization recognize members' conservative values, um, but never in that did it acknowledge any other type of diverse thought or people in the room or in our community. And um, that was really difficult. And a few other staff members and members of the organization came to me and said they were really uncomfortable with how that unfolded and you know, the lack of acknowledgement or recognition or respect for other people's views. And when we were talking about, I went directly to the CEO and I said, we should be recognizing all forms of diversity in our organization, not only in our staff culture document that no one had any input on um, as staff or as members of the organization, but also just respectfully out of people who are customers, the, de the demographics of our industry and our community, we should be recognizing those and diversity being a holistic definition of the term, um, not only protected classes of um, sexual orientation, race, um, or gender, um, or any beliefs or background and experience in the industry or outside the industry, you know, all of the, that diverse thought comes together and makes things stronger. Um, especially when you're in a room with working on policy or communication, um, or marketing initiatives, that diversity of thought is huge and being able to do things better and better understand other people's perspectives. Um, well, the CEO blatantly said, if you don't like it, you can leave. And I came to an understanding that it was my leaving said more than my staying. And I think it's really important. Um, ever since that time, I've, I've found how I can help to elevate conversations of the importance of diversity and inclusion in our industry, because our industry, ag industry, is very diverse. Um, we have uh, so many different men and women and people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds as part of the industry, um, people of different religions or non-religion in the industry and sexual orientations as well. And I think it's really important because we hear a lot of derogatory comments in rural conservative areas of the country um, that make these people feel like they don't belong or they can't, um, they can't really fully contribute um, because they, they feel discriminated against um, when they hear those derogatory statements or those microaggressions that are taking place in such an aggressive way. Um, in different parts of the country. So I've really worked at, at trying to, to figure out how I can address that. And part of that has been through conversations and highlighting the people that are doing things well um, to, to be diverse voices in the room and to work toward be out, being allies and making sure that we're including all of those diverse aspects. And for me personally, as a gay man in agriculture, focusing on LGBTQ conversations, um, because, you know, upwards of five to 8% of the population across the country is, you know, identifies LGBTQ, but Oftentimes, um, because of those microaggressions or those derogatory actions and statements we hear, um, are forced to hide it out of fear of, of negative repercussions. And I think we've seen a lot of that in recent weeks and even this past weekend um, when you know, violent and derogatory statements turn into violent actions. And I think that that's incredibly important. We recognize no matter what our politics are, that we can respect people that are different from us and we can be inclusive of that. And I think inclusion of diverse thought is really important. It makes us stronger, um, especially when we're talking about agriculture and tying it back to our conversations with our customers. We need to understand our customers and their values and their perspectives. And, and, to, be, and, and to do that, if you need a business justification of that, you, you need to be able to understand their values to be able to connect with them um, to understand what it is that they want. And, and that's a really difficult conversation to be around, but it's been really fulfilling because um, the more that I've stepped up and definitely outside of my comfort zone 
but help to elevate the voices of people that are doing great things and being great leaders in the industry that represent those diverse perspectives. Um, I've had a ton of people come to me and say, thank you, because they felt like they were alone. They felt like there was no one else like them out in the industry. And um, that's incredibly powerful, but it's also a testament to the, to the work that needs to be done. Yeah, man, I do feel like this could be like an hour or two hour conversation. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. And I mean, I think that's huge that you're having these conversations. And like you said, they're not easy for for anybody involved. But I mean, it's a good thing that those conversations are being had. And unlike, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think ag is one of those industries where when you think of a farmer, you might think of an old white guy and that's it. But it's so much more diverse. I mean, like you're talking about, there are there are women on ranches. There are like farmers from every ethnicity, every race, every sexual orientation, like you're saying, that we don't really think about because we're just, I always say, whenever we think of a farmer, we think of that old timey painting, American Gothic with an old man and an old lady, and that's it. But I mean, it's, I, w- I would say it's really re- reflective of our current society now, just extremely diverse. Like you don't have to be, X, Y, and Z to be a farmer. Like literally anybody can be a farmer and we've got to be more respectful on that. And I mean, honestly, I grew up in a very conservative town and honestly, being a part of FFA was an amazing experience. I was in it in high school and I was a state officer. And honestly, I interacted with a lot of LGBTQ and that was my first time. And I was like, oh, okay, these people are different than me. That's, that's okay. That's fine. And I, I don't, that was just a great introduction and just, I would say, unfortunately, we didn't have like those huge conversations, but now I'm learning, you know, I need to have those conversations, especially when I hear somebody say something derogatory, I need to speak up. I need to be an ally. And, and, and yeah, there's a lot that goes into that. There's so much because I feel like, I don't know, it's tough for a lot of people, especially the old timey conservatives that don't want to change, but I would say they would have more in common than they would otherwise think. Definitely. And it, it could be a really difficult thing. And I think what I hear a lot is people saying, Oh, how can I be an ally? That's one mm-hmm. of the big things that I've, I've learned. You know, I, I, you know, had a, a series of, of articles and stories that I shared launched in, in the month of June. And just during the month of June alone, you know, had over 500,000 different readers, um, you know, on, on those stories that I was sharing, um, and one of the big resounding things that I heard is how, how can I be an ally? You know, I, I want to do it, but I'm not sure how, and maybe that's why I haven't spoken up. And I think it's, uh, you, you know, you can say, you see something, see something, or you see something, say something, uh, and be able to speak up in conversations. Maybe when you see those microaggressions happening or where you see someone else being uncomfortable in part of a conversation or a situation. Um, but I think one of the big things where you can start is by asking questions and hearing other people's perspectives and, and amplifying those. Um, because Trevor, you know, if it will, you know, an FFA and an ag educator, you know, you're exposed to a lot of different um, stories, but, you know, as an ally, I think, you know, using this LGBTQ space as a, as a place, you know, you as a, a cis white male, white straight male, like you can have a lot of impact and influence on people who look like you and being able to share those stories. And so that's where, you know, I think a lot of work as allies, people who are allies of, of any type of diversity, um, don't be afraid to kind of join the conversation and elevate the stories of those who are doing well, um, because people that maybe agree with you on most things um, will see you sparking the conversation, even if they disagree with you on that topic. 
um, they can try to, you know, that can be kind of breaking down walls and breaking down barriers and, and making them at least maybe planting a seed where maybe down the road, they can be more comfortable and maybe asking some questions or recognizing the importance of, of recognizing acknowledging and respecting um, diversity of thought when it comes to those situations. Yeah. I think that diversity of thought is huge because I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like everybody, not everybody, but there's communities around the country that are kind of like this. We have our echo chambers and we don't want to leave those echo chambers, whether it's conservative, liberal, whatever it is, we're comfortable there. We don't want to challenge anything that we know. And I mean, I'm guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of that to some degree. And I mean, once we leave that circle, it's going to be a little bit scary, but it's okay. We're going to grow. We're going to figure it out. And I mean, I've often thought like, like becoming an ally. And that's something I've tried to like think about a lot this year. That's something I need to do, honestly, like a much better job of doing. But I feel like a lot of people that are, they don't want to become an ally. They think it's like, I've got to change my life around. I've got to like do so much when no, like, it's just like, if you hear something derogatory, speak up. Like if, I don't know, support other stories. Like you don't have to go, I don't know, you know, completely, completely hardcore. Like you can just be like, Hey, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to build relationships, build some friendships. That's being an ally. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, one of the things it, it can be really uncomfortable to be an ally um, when you're in the room and, and someone makes what they think is a joke, which is actually kind of a derogatory mm. statement toward other yeah. people who may or may not be in the room. Um, it can be really uncomfortable, but I think it's really important, especially in, in that moment to speak up and say, Hey, I don't, think that's appropriate and why um you know it'll be an uncomfortable moment and it may not lead to greater conversation but i think we need more moments like that kind of standing up and acknowledging you know some maybe some of those actions some of those those thoughts um, that are derogatory towards other people aren't aren't always very appropriate and we can do better yeah and i mean i feel like when you have those tough conversations those tough conversations are going to be like ingrained in your mind. And when you stand up, you're going to be very proud that you did that instead of having regret that just goes on and on and on. I mean, yeah, again, I feel like this is another two hour conversation, but I mean, what you've been doing online and people that follow you and kind of help promote you, you've been doing a great job. And you have like a monthly series, right? Every, is that February? Where you just kind of promote what's going on? Um, so that was in June and Pride June. Month um, was okay. when I yeah. shared a lot of those LGBTQ stories. Yeah, I, t- I, I took that opportunity. You know, it's, it's celebrated as Pride Month and being able to do that. So I took the opportunity to kind of gather my courage and uh, mm-hmm. and and work with with the people who were willing to to trust me to share their stories and kind of do that. And it's something that um, will continue. Um, I think it's year round, and I'm definitely continue to kind of share those stories. I was definitely more concerted effort, you know, in June when those stories and those topics are top of mind. Um, but it's something that continues. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak and work with a lot of organizations. I think it's really cool in this space, uh, in agriculture world, especially in ag industry, um, working with some organizations that said, "Hey, we want to do better. We're inviting, you know, diverse people with diverse thoughts and diverse perspectives in to share their experiences, so we we can now uh, do better." And that's your major ag organizations, um, major, you know, associations, membership organizations, or ag industry, mm-hmm. they're having a lot of those conversations. And I think what's really cool that I've learned and experienced through all, a lot of that, a lot of our corporate, you know, structured organizations and ag, such as um, your pharmaceutical sales or your marketing agencies and things like that, they have really cool work internally. Um, employee resource groups is kind of the terminology that, that you use that maybe a lot of people are not familiar with, but um, employee resource groups or groups of their peers that work together on different topics and different themes. And that may be people of color um, or men or women 
or um, differently abled people or LGBTQ issues. And I think what's I think it's really cool. There's a lot of work going on there, how we can be more inclusive, how we can incorporate more diversity into our work that we're doing. Uh, what I would really, I think would be really cool and I've been working with these organizations on is like, how can we share those resources and that knowledge mm-hmm. um, of how to have those conversations better with the grassroots people, everyday people that are involved in agriculture. Maybe they're not employees of those organizations, but your everyday people fa- involved in agriculture, farming and ranching could really benefit from those resources and learnings and insights of how do we have those better conversations. And so that's some of the work that I continue to do, not only to help, you know, organizations that want to continue to improve upon what they're doing, but how can we make those resources that those experts have from those experiences and and those people who are doing the work, how can we make those resources available to people like you and me um, who want to learn more and want to figure out how we can, we can do better on these different topics. Yeah, totally agree. Sorry, you broke up for a second. Yeah, I I think giving them those tools would be a huge issue and would be, I mean, phenomenal, whether that's, I don't know, at the extension office level or something. I think that would be a great tool, especially for people that might not interact with those communities very much. So, but yeah, awesome. I think what you're doing there is great. I think the industry needs a lot more of it. So very proud of you. I think that's always very, very cool. Thank you. Um, And so another one, this is not related to anything else. Well, kind of, kind of. You're also like an ultra marathon runner, right? Yeah. Guilty as charged. Uh, <laughs> kind of a crazy person. Yeah. I mean, I saw, was it last year or something you ran what a hundred miler or something? Is that right? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, I, I always joke and I say, well, I wasn't much of a runner, but then went to grad school in the local beer market, had a 5k every Monday and, <laughs> and heck yeah, I was, I could do three miles for a pint of beer. But um, as I moved out West and kind of got on the trails, I really dove a little bit deeper into really kind of enjoying um, running and out on the trails. And so this kind of built as I ran a marathon, um, and 50 mile races that I've kind of stepped up and, and really am enjoying the hundred mile race distance. Um, and so I got a couple hundred milers under my belt, definitely looking forward to doing more than in 2023. And so, you know, that's not just on race day and being out and running upwards of 24 mile or 24 hours, a uh, hundred miles in, in that time, but all the training that kind of goes into it. And I really love the community. Um, of ultra runners, trail runners, very um, unique uh, in being able to jump into a race, you know, wherever I go and automatically having community and people that Mm. are there to help you out all day long. And then you're out on those races and you see people at at the aid stations and you're running with them all day and and you get such a great camaraderie um, with that network and that community that's that's out there. And I think for me, I I definitely enjoy that. But one of the unique things um, that that, kind of ties back into my uh, desire and, and, and want to be an advocate for agriculture and, and specifically like the role of beef and in the healthy and balanced diet um, is that, you know, I, I'm living those things. I'm showing how, you know, I can eat beef as part of my diet and a large part of my diet and be able to perform well. Um, you know, I've got top 10, top 20 finishes in the hundred mile races that I've done and I've, I've been fairly competitive at it and I hope that I can continue to do better. But recognizing a lot of those athletes are a lot of narrative about how we should remove beef from our diet. We should remove meats altogether and animal proteins altogether from our diets in order to perform well. And that's kind of how I counter that is I bring my experiences as a farmer, as a rancher, and as a beef eater um, to those races. And so when I'm running and I've got a beef jersey on, um, you know, I've had conversations with people I'm out there with all day, or I see it several different races and, and it never fails when they find out, find out that I raise cattle 
um, they are super excited because they have all kinds of questions to ask about food and farming. <laughs> and that's a really unique opportunity, I think, um, that I really enjoy to, to combine the two passions, my love for farming and, and beef and cattle, but also love that I have for, for running and in those endurance events. So, um, you know, I'd be out there for 20 plus hours covering a hundred miles and being competitive at it. But I also love being able to connect with that community as well. That's a lot of miles. And yeah, that's so cool. Cause like, I mean, like you're saying, so many people are now like, Oh, we can be high, high performing athletes, but we just don't need animal protein. But here you are running hundreds of miles. Like you said, top five, top 10 finishes. And you're like, no, I'm doing it with animal protein. Here's how I'm doing it. Here's why it's a good idea. They're like, Oh, okay, cool. That's awesome. So you're, you're I mean, you're not only representing runners, you're also representing eating beef and beef ranchers and a whole industry. So you've got a lot on your shoulders, really. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, well, you know, I got 20 plus hours to think about it all. So okay, I guess true. I can cover a lot, <laughs> but you know, running even like 40, 50, you know, miles a week or more uh, at peak times, you know, it, that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of dedication to kind of structuring the time and being able to get that all done. But yeah, uh, a crazy runner, but I think, you know, running a hundred miles is, is quite the endurance challenge. You don't get that physical challenge. Mm. Um, it's that often, you know, in today in modern life where we've got so many conveniences. And so it's kind of a good creative outlet for me um, that, uh, yeah, I'll admit uh, I've got my crazy, but I say everybody's got their crazy. This one just happens to be mine. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, what's your thing? Do you listen to music, podcasts, or do you meditate kind of when you're running? What's kind of your, what kind of keeps you running for those hundred miles? Um, yeah, my training miles during the week. So, you know, mix it like treadmill or on the road or out on the trails some, um, a lot of times I'll put my headphones on and, and I'll be listening to podcasts, um, audio books, a lot of audio books mm. and kind of continue that learning process. Um, or a lot of the podcasts that are hearing like other people's uh, running stories and adventures, um, that that's kind of a cool way to pass the time. But hmm. during races, usually, especially when I'm out on the trails, I don't wear any headphones. Um, one, cause you know, when you're out on the trails, you kind of need to be attentive to everything that's going on, but I also enjoy the conversations that happen throughout the day. Mm. Uh, so I kind of really want to be attentive to, to who I'm around and, and who that opportunity exists to kind of connect with while I'm out on the race. And, and so that's kind of cool, um, to have that, that opportunity when I've met people from coast to coast and all around the globe in different races and get to hear their experiences. And, and that's just a really kind of a cool way to connect with other people. I bet that is fun. And I mean, I'm sure it's not very easy to have those conversations after mile, I don't know, 50 or 60, maybe. Uh, I think it's even more important to have those conversations after <laughs> mile 50 or 60. So you can kind of not just focus on maybe the pain that you're having and sore muscles and, and exhaustion and fatigue, but be able to uh, to kind of have that camaraderie and share that experience with other people. And And there's a lot of motivation that comes along when you're running with somebody else and you're both in the same state and both struggling um, because you've had, you know, the same number of miles behind you. Um, that I think that's even where we're, where those conversations even become more important. I bet. Yeah. That's what keeps you going. Um, so I have been needing, needing to work out and be healthier and be more active. So 2023, I think I'm finally, I've said this for like three years in a row, but I'm going to actually try to do it, be more active, run some more. What advice would you give? for somebody that wants to run. I just bought some on clouds. I'm super excited. They're super, super soft, might run and jog in them. So what kind of advice would you give for anybody that might want to get into running yet alone, like distance running? Yeah, I love it. Uh, first, and I think we're all guilty of this, right? January one is getting near. And so we were like, all right, what are my resolutions? What oh, am I yeah, gonna do yeah. different? Uh, I'm going to get started and get on, get on my fitness journey so I can get rid of that holiday weight. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I think running is 
one of the things that really um, got me into to the new routines and really got me into enjoying running was defining that community or finding a way mm-hmm. to make it joyful for me. Um, for me, that was finding um, j- finding opportunities to jump into a couple of uh, team relays. And, you know, we did Ragnar relays or did a couple of relays where you're, you know, it's a, it's a team effort. It's a team opportunity for to kind of get out there and, and be part of the effort and know that you've got other people that have expectations that, that you perform as well. Um, so you've got other people that are kind of there for accountability. And I think that was a key um, accountability, but also people there that you can enjoy the experience with. And I think that was, that was really important, um, but also find ways to make it enjoyable. It's not a chore. And I think a lot of it, and that's one of the things that I've learned is I've gotten into, you know, all day endurance events, huge part of it is mindset. And so it's not, I have to run or, oh, this hurts or, oh my mm. goodness, I've got three miles. It's so far. Um, find ways to make that um, a mental challenge that you can accomplish and celebrate those accomplishments. And so for me, when I'm out there in a hundred mile race, you know, like, oh my goodness, hundred miles, that is so far. Well, I break it up from aid station to aid station. I break it into smaller chunks that um, that I know I can accomplish. And I've got a goal that's near to shoot for. So is that the number of minutes or number of miles or tenths of mile that you can shoot for? And and I think that can be really important. So, you know, maybe it's as you're getting into that routine and, and to make it a routine, um, go out there and shoot for, okay, I'm going to run for a tenth of a mile and walk walk a tenth. And how can you focus on that and slowly building that up? That's really important um, in being able to do that. So break it up into smaller chunks. And I think the final thing that I found that was really important is that accountability aspect. Mm-hmm. And so sharing your goals, um, sharing your aspirations online for the public to see, that's that's daunting, right? That's intimidating to share. Here's my big, big hairy goal that I have, my big lofty goal that I have. But if you share that out into the world on social media or whatever it might be, find yourself some accountability um, partners who will, who will hold you to those goals and check in with you as you go about on your journey. And I think that's that's key. So when you get into these fitness journeys, these fitness resolutions around the first of the year, you know, don't think about it as like, this is my goal, but it's a lifestyle change. And so how can you mm-hmm. make that a journey uh, that you enjoy and break it into smaller smaller chunks and smaller pieces that you know you can accomplish and find those people who can hold you accountable and, and make it enjoyable. Good ideas. I like the, the breaking it up into smaller pieces reminds me of a quote. It's like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. time. Yep. And I like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'm going to have to follow that. I'm going to have to maybe tweet it out there. Um, I don't know, in a couple of months or something in a month or two and be like, Hey, I'm going to run. I'm gonna get How far shape. do you want to go in January? How oh, your number of miles? I don't know. Uh, I think I could make it three. I've never been like a long big time runner. And so I want to like, I need to get back in shape, you know, and just run consistently. I mean, my wife and I, we downloaded um, couch to 5k but we haven't started it yet. So we're going to try to start that in in a couple of months. And it does a really good job of like breaking it down between like walking, jogging, walking, jogging, running, jogging, running, and just slowly amps you up to get ready for a 5k. So eventually when you do 5k, which is is what? 3.5 miles. Yeah. Uh, So 5k is 3.1 miles. Okay. Yeah. That's doable. That's doable. I I think, yeah, one of those is, so (laughs) the way I'd use that in his example to kind of make it into chunks that are easy and, and would hold you accountable. So you want to run a 5k and, and you kind of work back from that. So how many miles do you want to have in a month? That's kind of a goal to shoot for you. Okay. Are you shooting for 30 miles in a month or 60 miles in a month? Um, but then that that's really good. And that kind of gives you a number and a closer near term to shoot for, but to make that even more digestible, 
instead of a month, like 30 days is a long time. How can you have it like, okay, per week? Okay, this week I'm going to get 10 miles in. Mm-hmm. And what is my map? What's my roadmap to get 10 miles? Okay, I know I got the, my schedule. These are my obstacles that are in my way. Because that's where a lot of us get off. Like January 7th, I've already busted my resolution kind of thing. But when you sit down and say, okay, this month or this week, I want to get, you know, 10, 15 miles in. Say I want to get 15 miles in. That's, you know, if I rode in five days, that is that three miles in a day? So if I want, you know, is that, a, is that an amount that I can, I can handle? Or is it, okay, I'm going to get 10 miles in this week. You know, so that's a mile and a half a day or so. And you can break it down into smaller chunks that you can accomplish and say, okay, well, I've got this travel schedule or this meeting schedule. So I've got a plan to get my run in in the morning. I've got to do it in the afternoon or the evening. How am I going to hold myself accountable and being able to do that? And a mile seems like a lot more attainable than 60 miles. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And so that's, you know, that I think that's how I'd break that down and kind of that example of being able to break it down into chunks where you can hold yourself accountable, but it's also something that, you know, you can accomplish. Like you can go out there and, and walk and in 15 minutes, you can have a mile in. And, and that, that's a chunk that you know that you can accomplish and, and can build that confidence, but it can also build into that, um, that re- build, make it a routine and into something and celebrate those wins. Um, when you, when you do accomplish them. Yeah. Kind of like a domino effect. I mean, you, you did this, now did the next one, did the next one. Now you've ran 50 miles in a month and you can do 200 miles in a year or something. Not bad. Those, those are, that's good advice. I'm going to definitely follow that. So I'll have to give you an update in March or something, let you know how those miles are going. So we'll see. I'll check back in with you. Hey deal. All right. Before we go, um, I saw this on Instagram. I have some quick fire jokes for you on cows. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. And you, you feel free to answer them. Why can't cows wear flip-flops? I don't know why. Because they lack toes. <laughs> what do you what do you call a cow with two legs? Uh I don't know. Lean beef. Lean beef. Lean there beef. You go. Uh what do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. Correct. And then last one. Um, how do cows count? I'm not sure. With a calculator. With a calculator. There you go. (laughs) I saw them on a reel on Instagram. I was like, I'm going to ask Ryan those because those are hilarious and they're cow themed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I overthink those things. There's so many possibilities that I could answer. Right. (laughs) I bet. Yeah, those are fun. Uh, Well, Ryan, this has been an awesome conversation, man. If people want to follow you, if they want to follow you on Instagram, Twitter, your blog or wherever, where can they go to follow you and see what you're doing? Yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to reach out. Let me know. Do you have running running goals that you want to accomplish or do you have questions that are burning questions about, you know, cattle or beef? And if I don't know the answer, we'll find somebody who does. But I've made it easy to find me online. It's at Beef Runner on any of the social platforms you know, or beefrunner.com. And, and you can find me and feel free to shoot me a message, ask me a question or or um, if there's something that you you want to you want to learn more about, whether it's diversity, equity and inclusion or any of the ag topics or running, I, I'm more than happy to jump into a conversation. Yeah. And you also, are you the moderator of the Facebook group, Ag Proud, right? Yes. So Agriculture Proud was my brand that I started way back in uh, the early, early 2000s as kind of an opportunity. And that's kind of what built the story of, of ag community and, and advocacy for me, uh, even though some brands have kind of tried to, I guess, plagiarize it um, mm. these days as some of their own. But that's that's a whole nother story, too. But yeah, <laughs> Ag Proud is something that I'm pretty proud of, of being able to build, you know, a community of, of tens of thousands over the last dec- couple of decades and, and being able to help so many people 
um, throughout their advocacy journey or just be able to connect with ag in, in new ways that they hadn't before. Yep. Well, there you go. Sorry, you broke up again. All right. Well, perfect. Well, Ryan, thanks so much, man. It was great to finally chat with you for a long time. Um, we'll have to have you on again soon to keep up the great work. We'll be following you on Twitter, Instagram, everywhere like usual, but really appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Appreciate it.